Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. When we first moved to Durham, we lived and rented a house not far from here in the South Point area. And it was a great house because it was on a cul-de-sac and um, it was a rental, so I didn't have to fix anything. And it was just enjoyable that during that time in our first two years at Waypoint as we were living here in Durham. Well, one of the things we didn't know about that house was that it was very problematic there were some issues deep underneath the house that were creating major, major problems. First of all, the foundation of the house was cracked and sinking. It was completely on the front corner, shifting down like this. Also, every time it would rain, every neighbor surrounding us all around was higher than us. So we sat in a bowl. And as it would rain, water would rush into the backyard and ride up against the foundation of the house. It would literally hit up against it like waves. Well, that water began to seep under the house and had been doing so for many years. And in the midst of all this, we began to discover that all of us were starting to show some very strange health issues. Well, what it was, is that underneath this house, where all that moisture was, was growing black mold all over everything. And actually, it was so moist underneath this house that the boards supporting the house, the beams, were rotting. So it wasn't long, I don't, it's not going to be long, I don't think, that this house is going to stand. I'm not sure, unless a lot of foundation work's done to it. Actually, the owner of the house that we were renting from offered to sell it to us. We did not live there any longer, and we did not buy that house. But it's important that a home have a very solid and working and healthy foundation. We would all agree to that, right? It's also important that as we, as a church, build a foundational structure for what we believe, that it is solid, and healthy. And so as we have started a summer series in the book of Ephesians, we are walking through the paces of trying to understand this book and understand the message that God has for us. 
And so in the book of Ephesians, last week we began our series and we talked about this huge doctrine of the Trinity, which is placed before us. So I have time to recap that, but you can go to SoundCloud and listen to that sermon again so that you can get background on the foundation of what we find in 15 through 23. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, he was writing to them to help strengthen them. Now, Ephesus could not have been an easy place to live. There would have been great persecution. It would have been corrupt in every way, from government to morals. And it was difficult to live there because of this one specific temple, the temple to the goddess Artemis. And it became the, that temple, actually one of, they say one of the seven wonders of the world, was actually the central place that all of public life centered in Ephesus. And so, Paul is writing a letter to believers in this city called Ephesus, the believers that call the Ephesians. And so, as we looked at last week, these foundational things, it's important that we see that God has given us the scriptures and important, sometimes even deep and hard to understand doctrines which form a foundation for what we believe, how we understand God. God reveals his character to us in his word. We understand him and his nature and his attributes when we look at his word. And so the beginning of Ephesians is giving this grand picture of who God is, how he's revealed himself as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but yet as one. And that foundation piece we call the gospel because all of that working together, and you can go back and again, listen to this sermon, but all of that working together presents this grand narrative of our salvation and how it comes about by God's initiative. So Ephesians is structured in a way that kind of helps us see these big doctrinal, big theological pictures of God. And then it kind of starts going back down to how do you apply that and how do you live that? Now the book really could be divided in half. The first three chapters really focusing on who God is and who his nature is. The second half really helping us develop how to live the Christian life, how to walk in Christianity throughout every day. But in chapter one, it kind of has a similar structure. Chapter one builds up God, this big grand doctrine. And then the rest of it, 15 through 23, is really going to show us how Jesus wants his church to live. So Paul's beginning this time, he's saying to the church, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would understand what I just said. Now you recall verses 3 through 14 were one big run-on sentence, 202 words to be exact, of run-on. Now I had an English teacher in high school. Her name was Mrs. Wise. Mrs. Wise, my senior year of high school, was probably ever, you know, the school rumor. The worst teacher you could ever get, right? This teacher was going to hold you to very difficult understanding of the English language and make you learn it. So we would read books and we would have to write papers. This was a, this was a college prep class too, so she was getting us ready. But I would remember getting papers back and red 
all over them. Like my paper is bleeding. It's just covered in red, right? If Mrs. Wise was here today, she would wear Paul out on the book of Ephesians. She would just go crazy on his 202 word run on sentence in verses 3 through 15 or 3 through 14. But here again in 15 through 23 in the Greek language is a second run on sentence. It's one big sentence in the Greek that we've got to really kind of decipher and sort through. Now, in our English translations, the translators thankfully helped us out and tried to divide that up a little bit. So that's why you'll see different things in IV, ESV, um, NASB. They're divided just a little bit different. And if you're looking at it, you're like, why? It's because they're trying to deal with the run-on, and Mrs. Wise was with them with her red pen. So Paul is praying to the Sovereign Father at this time, verse 15. And he says, he starts this out with, for this reason. And that, for this reason, is actually referring back to the first run-on sentence. That first 3 through 14, he's saying, for this reason, because I just shared with you this deep doctrine of who God is, because of that, I want to pray, he says, I want to pray for you to understand it. But he says this first. He says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. I've seen your love toward all the saints. So I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then in verse 17, he says that, and this is kind of the beginning of his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and he names these things out. He's asking God to provide these things for us as we take a look into his scriptures that he may give us the spirit of wisdom. That he would give us the revelation of the knowledge of him. And that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Now, one other thing that the writer Paul is famous for is making up new words. If you've ever read Timothy and you read about the God-breathed scriptures, that word God-breathed was a word that Paul made up. He coined this word. Well, he also is coining this phrase here, eyes of our hearts. I look at that and I think, that could be a really freaky looking picture. That there would be eyes in a heart. Like, what is he trying to say here? How is he saying that? Well, what he's saying is he would like for us to be illuminated. He would like, see, the eyes are actually the thing that light travels into our body and gives us the ability to see things. It's they are, are known sometimes for people saying they illuminate the body. So Paul is praying that we would be illuminated in this instance concerning specifically the divinely inspired scriptures. So illumination is this. God is going to open our eyes, in this case the eyes of our heart, into our very soul to know Him and His truth. But see, that's where a lot of people start flaking out a little bit. Because where is truth found? Well, foundationally, in the gospel, we understand it only inside of God's revealed Word. And here's the thing. If we really want to know who God is, we look into the Bible. This is how He's shown Himself. 
This is how he's going to illuminate the church. He inspired the word of God. Every word in here and gave it authority as the truth. So if we want to know God, we know his word. If we want to know who God is, we read about him. If we understand the character and nature of God, we decipher that by opening the word. Not through experiences, not through feelings, but through truth which has lasted through century after century after century. So knowing God in His Word means also that our responsibility is that we read it. That we take time and understand Him by reading it. So the, the church today, I think, needs deep intimacy with the Word of God, the Bible. And at Waypoint Church, we believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired, fully true, wholly authoritative, without question, word from God to His people. It's a revelation. He's showing Himself to us. Well, as we talk about God the Father, it's also Father's Day. Now, I'm a father, and I told my kids... I have a platform to embarrass them if they mess with me this summer. They've been great. So George Herbert, 17th century poet, said this about dads. One father is more than a hundred schoolmasters. Uh, John Green, the guy that wrote Fought With Our Stars, this book, um, <clears throat> He says this, the nature of impending fatherhood is that you're doing something that you're unqualified to do, and then you become qualified while doing it. Well, being a dad is a lot of fun. It's an amazing opportunity for growth in my own life, but it's also a great opportunity to raise up a generation of what the Bible calls arrows that we fire into a time that we will never see. They're ambassadors to that time. And we as parents have the great opportunity of raising them up and discipling them. Fathers especially at the helm, leading families to know God and to know His Word. And so um, I thought as we talked about God's Word, as we talk about as it's on Father's Day, that I would also encourage you dads, that as you know the Word of God, that you pass it on to the next generation. And I think that's something that the church also needs, is that not only we know the Word of God, but that we pass it on, that we allow the next generation to know it, to understand it, to be able to love it as we do. You know, our children will more likely follow the example that we leave behind, which will never die, more than all the pieces of advice that I'm going to leave, which are probably going to be forgotten. And I remember this every time I preach. I know none of you will remember this sermon tomorrow. So, so happy Father's Day to all you dads. One writer said, A child enters your home and for the next 20 years makes so much noise you can hardly stand it. The child departs, leaving the house so silent you think you're going mad. 
Kids make a great impact on our lives and on the sound of our homes. But really, I think that quote's great, and that quote has given me a lot to think about, because ultimately, dads, and this is really, I'm going to take the rabbit trail. Um, ultimately, dads, if we really look at our kids, we've got about 20 years. About 20 years. And so I look at it as two hands, and I've shared this with some of you before. The first decade and the second decade. And that's what we have. In the first decade, you need a lot of physical energy. Because they're babies, and they are awake at night, and they are wild, and they have a lot of energy themselves. And so it wears you out physically. In the second decade, you need a lot of emotional energy. You need to be on your knees a lot more. You're coaching more. You're mentoring more. But ultimately, if you want to have a relationship in the second decade, it's really foundational to build within that first decade. In that first decade, you're building them to love and have fun, but you're also sharing the Word of God as from on a small level, on a kid's level. But in the second de decade, they move from being concrete thinkers to abstract thinkers, and they start asking you really crazy questions, and they start really digging into life. Because after the second decade, we're launching them. We're launching them out to go into the world, like I said, as these ambassadors. Well, my kids are leaving behind this decade now. And it's kind of bittersweet for us. Titus is already in this decade. Eden's leaving this one. And it's bittersweet as we watch this happening and as we think about that really less than a decade left. Some of you are empty nesters. You know what it's like to have the silent home, but to think and maybe fill it with grandkids, but also to think about what that meant, what that heritage, what that legacy meant. So something that as we look at God's word and as God, our father, thought to leave us a legacy, he sent his own son, but that he left the word here for us and gave us the Holy Spirit to help us in, in this process of illumination. So God reveals himself in the word, but God reveals himself in a couple of ways. So this is a little theology lesson. There's this idea called general revelation. Okay, this is the concept where God opens up our eyes and our minds to understanding who he is. Okay, in his creation. He gives us the ability to explore and know him because he's revealed himself in all that he's created. From trees and birds and animals and the ocean and the rivers and the mountains to the people that we see every day. This is how God has established that there's one way to know him. And Romans chapter 1 says that even inside of that general revelation that there's no excuse, that you can know that there is a God. Ecclesiastes says that he's placed eternity deep in our hearts. We know deep down inside that there is a God. I wanted my kids to understand general revelation, a theological term, but they're not going to listen to a systematic theology lesson. So this summer, I gave my kids a present as they finished school. I gave them a set, each a set of binoculars and said, Slow down and observe. You can teach your kids theology through a set of binoculars. 
by allowing them and walking alongside of them as they slow down and observe God's creation, who God is, how we discover the creativity, the majesty, and the sovereignty of God all within His creation. Now you can disprove evolution by looking at a leaf with your children and help them to understand that God is an amazing creator. When I was growing up, I grew up in Asheville, and so this is the view from my front yard. This is what I grew up seeing. And my understanding of who God is was shaped by this. Many times I spent sitting in that yard with my black Labrador retriever by my side, contemplating what and who and all of this how did it come about? God has revealed Himself to us in this general way. And it's a grace gift to the entire world. But God also gives us the ability to know Him through what's called special revelation. That is His Word. So I also this summer wanted my kids to understand the dual concept of revelation. So I also gave them this book. I highly recommend it for kids. It's called Exploring the Bible, a Bible reading plan for kids. And I wrote inside of that, I said, you, the greatest adventure of life comes in the pursuit of God. And I said, this summer, kids, I want you to observe who God is through these binoculars and learn who God is through His special revelation. Now, I didn't say it like that. But I said, I'm going to give you this book, and I want to challenge you. In one year, if you go through this book, you will know God better. I'm not going to hover over them, Father Eagle looking over his chicks, making sure they do their homework. I just issue them a challenge as a father, offering them to say, do you want to know God? And that's exactly what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. I want you to know God. And as your pastor, Pastor Lawrence and I want you to know who Jesus is. We challenge you, church, read the Word of God. Know it. Take it and read it so that you will truly know who God is. That's what Paul's praying here. So God has given us the church to be able to help us as a community of folks understand him better as well. And so out underlying the church is a foundation of the gospel and the church sits and exists on that revealed understanding of who God is. But how does that play out for the church? So Paul's prayer is that inside the church with the word of God that we would know God. And yet he also is going to walk us through, for the rest of Ephesians, we're going to break this down even further as we walk through Ephesians for the summer, how God wants us to know Him, how He's designed the church. If you look ahead at the last part of chapter 1, he says that he's talking about this power. He says that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. That means Jesus is supreme. Can you say that with me? Jesus is supreme. He is above everything. But then look at what, look at what God does here. 
He says he's, a, he's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's talking about eternity. So for all of eternity, Jesus is supreme. And it says this, verse 22, And he put, God put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is God's global mission. The church is God's global mission. And we see that in these specific ways. First of all, God has given us as one of the pillars of the church and one thing that we stand on, built on the foundation of the gospel in Waypoint Church, community. He's given us community. He's given us a family to be together. And I tell you what, sometimes family can be ugly, right? I'm not saying you're ugly. But sometimes the bride of Christ is not very beautiful. But he loves her anyway. And he has also asked the bride in its many parts to be unified. Part of the word community is the word unity. That we would be a unified family. So at Waypoint Church, we have what's called a covenant family. When you join our church and become a member, we are covenanting together that we are going to love each other, warts, zits, and all. All right? Pastor Lawrence says this, and I love it, and we, we talk about this at home so much. At Waypoint Church, this is a place where you can be known and loved. Some people are known, if you, if you got to know me a little bit better, you might not love me. I say that in jest, but seriously, some of us think that. I've lived a lot of my life thinking, if people actually know me, why would they love me? Why would they care? Some people are loved, but they're not really known. But we believe at Waypoint that God has called us to create a community that's so loving and so knowing that you're accepted no matter what. Now, that also sometimes means that we have to work towards reconciliation. I am going to hurt feelings. I am. And I do. I'm not perfect. I'm human. All of us are going to hurt each other. All of us are going to walk this life in joys and in pains and in suffering and highlights and the lowlights, celebrations and grievances. But we're to do it together. We're to walk this life together in the trenches, as C.S. Lewis would say. We are to come together in such unity and peace that nothing will tear us apart because we are a community. And existing inside that community is great love. So, like I was saying in Ephesians couldn't have been an easy place for an Ephesus for a Christian to live. But the Christian community in Ephesus, Paul says back at the beginning there, in verse 15 and 16, he says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love toward all the saints. I've heard about your community and how you have created a loving place for people to be. So I'm not going to cease giving thanks for you in my prayers. 
This loving community exalted Christ, recognized His authority, grows together in their knowledge of God, knows the blessings of the gospel, and lives like that. We are reconciled brothers and sisters seeking to be conflict resolvers, lifting each other up, praying for each other, existing together in life. In, even in and amongst our differences, the gospel brings great unity. So this family serves together. They grow together. They understand one another. They're there for each other. So that brings me to another pillar that we believe is so vitally important in the life of the church at Waypoint, and that is discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is being His follower, and we're all in community growing together in that. We're all working together. So we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit together. That's certain. We also need the ongoing teaching of our great teacher, the Spirit of Jesus living inside us. Verse 17 says that He would give us wisdom. Psalm 111 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't say the fear of the Lord is wisdom. It says it's the beginning of it. Life in Jesus, being a disciple, is walking that life for a long time. Learning, growing, making mistakes, learning from them. Walking a life of repentance and faith. As Luther said, this is all of life. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. It's this ongoing cycle. And we're in community, growing together, walking together, in discipleship to, uh, together, in unity, a family doing this. And so he says also that we would have, so we would, that, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher in wisdom, but that our, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher in revelation, in the things that he reveals to us. Not the book of Revelation, but how God's revealed himself to us in verse 17. So we've, we learned earlier the only divine revelation is the Word of God. There is no more. It stopped at the book of Revelation. We don't learn new things. We learn now what's here in the book of truth. So the divine revelation of the Word of God, Paul's praying that these Ephesian believers and us would know the wisdom of God found in this inerrant Word. So here's how we do that at Waypoint. And we did not come up with these fra this phraseology on this. It's just a way of understanding it. But there's something called the air war and the ground war. The air war is when teaching from the stage is reflective of an understanding of God's word being a revelation of himself. So from this stage, we are committed to constantly preaching and teaching the word of God. Walking through it, book by book, verse by verse doesn't matter how hard it is, we're going to keep going. And we hope and pray that during our time as pastors here, that we would teach you the entire counsel of the Word of God. That we would be able to see it and understand it and walk in it as a church together. And that's the big teaching. The ground war is what we do in our small groups ministry. It's taking what's taught on the stage and applying it even further, going even deeper, walking alongside of each other even further. And even beyond that, taking small groups, making them even smaller, taking discipleship relationships and making them even smaller. I would love to see, after my time at Waypoint, however long that is, that men and women 
are walking alongside of each other, discipling one another in an understanding of God's Word. We do that in our small group ministry. We want to do that life on life, one on one. And that's how we do discipleship in community based upon the foundation of the gospel supporting the church. See that? So in verse 18, he says that it goes to talks about these eyes in our heart, that they also would be enlightened. This is how we grow. We are making progress. It's called progressive sanctification. We're making progress day by day by day by day. God is making us, under, helping us understand Him, enlightening the eyes of our heart, helping us see that. The heart is the disposition or the bent of the human soul. And so He is opening our hearts to understand that. See, we're naturally bent against God and His ways. But the gospel is so amazing because it says, even in my nature, even in my bentness toward, away from God or toward rebellion against God, he loves me and draws me back. He comes after me. He pursues me. Charles Finney would call him the great hound of heaven. He would just come after us. So the eyes of my heart need to be enlightened to know God deeper, that I would grasp him and his understanding. And that, though, that I would be open to see this. And he talks about three things. He talks about hope, inheritance, and power. These are what I'm going to understand. I'm going to understand my hope. My hope comes from my calling and my election in Jesus Christ. That I have surely, certainly been called and saved, not on my own merit, but because of what Christ has done for me on the cross, dying in my place for my sin. And that gives me great hope because I'm His forever. Remember, in the first part of chapter 1, we've been sealed. The signet ring. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am His forever. This gives me great hope. Even in my darkest days, which there are some, there are many, I have hope. My sin has an end. Let me say that again. My sin has an end. It's not ended yet. I'm still in this tension of the already things that God's done for me and the not yet part that is still to be done. But in that future, eternal place, my sin has an end. It will be over. And that also gives me great hope. So I, but I, I don't have to wait for that day. I can look for this in this life. I can find great hope and rest and peace in Jesus Christ in this life now. Hebrews 6, when we study Hebrews, said this, that hope is the anchor for the soul. It gives us a reason to love this world with great compassion, which goes, leads to the third pillar, which we'll talk about in a second, which is mission. But also, the other thing that our heart, our heart eyes would be open to is not only hope, but inheritance. Now, this is really awesome, because right here, it's a, and it's very difficult to interpret, and as I read through commentaries and blogs and different scholars, it was people were really wrestling with this. But it says this in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, hope. He talks about what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you know what that means? We are the inheritance that God gives himself. He purchases his own inheritance through the death of his son 
and that inheritance being the church. Isn't that amazing? God's inheritance is us. We are his prize. We are the thing for which he longs his great possession. He's not going to lose that. He's not going to let that go. But in that, he also gives us access into the resources of heaven. It says here in chapter 1 that Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. You know what it's going to say in chapter 2? That we're seated there with him. Wow. We have access to the very things Jesus has access. And so this is the value that God places on us in Christ. We are of supreme value. So when our eyes, our heart eyes are opened, we have hope. And we see we're his inheritance. And the third thing we see is that we have power. This immeasurable power is seen in one act. God is going to show us this. In the Old Testament, God uses an analogy of bringing the Israelites out of slavery through the Red Sea. That is powerful. In the New Testament, he's like, I'm going to show you something even more powerful. I'm going to raise Jesus from the dead. Nobody has the power to raise anyone from the dead. God's saying, I'm going to raise Jesus from the dead. I'm going to show you my power exhibited in that. And in this, in us, that resurrection power exists. So now, unlike the, the Ephesian believers, now, in this day and time, I can face opposition to my faith. I can face earthly challenges with divine power. You know, sometimes as a believer, I can feel so powerless. I can, I can believe that I have spiritual failures that are so great because of the power of the flesh in me is acting against it. I can, be, I can believe that the temptations in this world are so overwhelming. I can see that my progress is so stinted in my growth as a believer. But Jesus is saying to us, I've given you great power. I've given you resurrection power to overcome and to walk in these things. So this power is spiritual power in us, overcoming sin and death, walking daily. Yes, I will fail, but man, God gives me power to take another step forward, to keep moving, to keep knowing that I, my, lo- my love, my life is secure in Him. He will never let me go. He's not going to lose His treasure. But he also gives us sovereign power. This is God's sovereign power exercising through Christ above all authorities. He talks about this long list of things that he's above. I do not have to fear my enemy who is Satan. The church is not my enemy. Believers are not my enemy. Unbelievers are not my enemy. I have one enemy. His name is Satan. Let's identify that right now. So often there's infighting within the church. We're skeptic about unbelievers. We're, we don't know how to walk on the face of this planet. Let me tell you something. We have one enemy and one enemy only. His name is Satan. And we have divine, sovereign, resurrection power to overcome him and his schemes on this earth today. And I need to know that. I need to know that when I don't feel hopeful. When I don't feel like a treasure. I need to know that there's something at work in me 
that is so much more powerful and that actually those dominions and authorities and powers Jesus is putting his feet up on it, resting. Ah, right? And that's amazing. And the last thing that the church has built upon this pillar that we believe, even Waypoint Church, is so important to us, is mission. That God has given us the purpose of global transformation. That's what he's called his church to do. That's what he's asking his bride to be about. We are God's mission force. God's global mission for transformation and renewal to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Every single one of them. And so later in Ephesians, we're going to look at a blueprint that's laid out for ministry for local churches to produce mutual love, it's going to say, which is community, to build personal purity, which is discipleship, and to be prepared for godly service, which is mission. Brian Chapel says the church is called to be the church so that by her proclamation of the gospel in word and deed, her people will be prepared to advance his kingdom wherever he calls them to be salt and light in this world. Like I said, the bride of Christ might be ugly, we are the most powerful force in the world for real change. And the church has survived generation after generation after generation. Now, my shirt today is representative of a great friend of mine, of others in this church, and of this church itself. His name is Keba. Keba is a tailor living in Gambia in West Africa among so many people who don't know Jesus. And Keba made this shirt for me. And I wear it today, well, because I like it, and because I'm 40 years old, I can wear whatever I want. But at the same time, because as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about the global mission of our church and how we're we're engaging an unengaged, unreached people group, a people who've never heard about Jesus. We're going to engage them with the gospel in Gambia. I was thinking about Keba. And you know what? As I was thinking through this, thinking through the hardships of living, what it, was, what it would be like to live in a Muslim country, to be a follower of Jesus and to be in the situation in which he's in as a church leader there, I just really just prayed for him this week. You know, when Keba first heard about Jesus, it was through the Word of God. Someone there had given him a Bible. And he was a Muslim religious leader. And he, he was afraid to read the Bible, so he would hide it. And he would pick it up when no one was around. He'd lock the door, and he would read it. And in the midst of reading God's word, he found God. He discovered who Jesus was. And then he decided to 
become very open about that. And he was describing to me the day that he was leaving his village because he was asked to. And as he and some other believers hauled his earthly belongings away in wheelbarrows, walking down the street, the entire town lined the street and spat on them. And then he said to me, he said, you know, it's really hard because in Gambia there's, he said, I don't know what it is. I pray for the unity of the church in Gambia. There are, there are Christians among other tribes in Gambia. They've grown up as Christians. He said, they will not associate with us who are formerly Muslims. So there's a Christian church and then there's a Muslim background church. And he said, they won't allow us into their churches. They won't allow us fellowship. They won't allow us access to training. And he said, we don't, we don't know God's word. We don't have access to resources like they do. Can you help us? And so it began a deep partnership for Waypoint Church to work alongside this man in, in Gambia. And now others are coming and are hearing and being trained in and under, understanding the word of God. God has called His church to be unified, growing in discipleship together for a great purpose, and that's His mission. And as we think about what missions means, and how often it's risky and hurts and can be very difficult, God's called Waypoint Church to live sent lives. To be people who are sent to be people who see the refugee as someone who's worthy of honor and love and respect and resources. Who sees a value in foster care and adoption and chases and pursues after them with great fervor. Who sees evangelism and ministry in our own what we call oikos, those areas where we live. Our, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our third places, whether it's a coffee shop or the gym, the place where God has put you as a missionary, we live sent. And for those unreached peoples in places all across the globe that have never had access to the gospel, we say, we will go. We will go. To the unreached peoples in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, we will send people to live there. To those unengaged, unreached people groups that have never had access to the gospel, which is very difficult to get access into those places geographically, we're saying we will go. We'll send teams. We'll send families. We'll send resources. We'll do whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus. The church at work in this world, Ephesians will say, is the incomparably great power for those, for those who believe. And so together, we believe Waypoint Church is built like this. This is what's important. And so some of you may be newer here, you may not know the history of this, but two little churches came together to create a force. Farrington Road Baptist Church 
was a church down the street. God blessed them with some financial resources. They built this building. They needed some pastors. Waypoint Church was a church plant that was hopscotching around the city in places where we weren't sure how we were going to be able to set up shop, set up house to live. But God brought these churches together and God established us in this place with a footprint right here at this spot in North Carolina to be a mission force for Him. He brought together two guys that really, I mean, Lawrence and I, we didn't know what God was going to do. But two guys that never met each other God put the same vision in their heart that a church in the triangle would exist to be a mission force of all nations working together. That on Sunday morning, we would no longer be someone who's separate, but people who are unified. All nations, all races together. That Sunday morning would not be segregated. That Sunday morning would be a place of reconciliation and a place of all peoples known for who they are, loving each other in that knowledge and for the purpose of making disciples among all nations. Change is hard sometimes. And I know that we have all gone through some change. And maybe, just maybe, we haven't had the chance as two little churches who've come together to really grieve that change. It's important to grieve some things that are lost. Journey Church has some things that they want to grieve and think through and pray over. And we need to support that. I need to support that. Waypoint Church, we have some things that have changed that we need to grieve about. And I want to support that and pray for you in that. You know, we went from a church meeting in the summer. It's like we were in Southern California or something. We met at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops. That whole summer, when the air conditioner didn't work at Lowe's Grove Baptist Church, and we had massive fans on the stage, and we were even handing out bottles of water one Sunday because it was so hot in that building. But we were gathering together to praise the Lord. And God moved us in different iterations to different places and we kept seeing people come in from all walks of life, nation after nation joining us, coming together in reconciliation with the purpose of reaching this world for Christ. And now God's landed us all together here. It is something new, but it's something that God has created. It's something that's glorious. And if we focus on this building here, not the structure we're sitting in, but what God has built as the gospel of Jesus Christ being the foundation and these pillars holding up the church, then there will be a day 30, 50, 60 100 years from now, Waypoint Church will still be going. Nations will still be reached. Unreached people groups will still be engaged because this church will be a church on mission. The church is God's elect bride to be a part of His ongoing mission to this world. 
And with our eyes opened to His truth found in the Scriptures alone, there will be challenges and often will be pain, but our efforts will prevail. However small we may feel our influence in this world, however opposed may be our efforts, however weak may seem our strength, those engaged in the work of the church are members of an agency that God has determined will exert His power for the transformation of this world. Our Lord Jesus calls us, Waypoint, to a good and a great work. May the eyes of our hearts be open to what He is doing and through us so that we will always speak of that hope, that inheritance, and that power that are the possession of those God calls His own for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we trust and believe that your word is true. And built and established on that, we ask you, God, to move powerfully in our midst. Thank you for your presence among us. Move in your spirit to draw us closer to you. Thank you that we are a loved people. Thank you that you have called us to a great purpose and that together as we grow, as we learn, you will show us the amazing mystery of who Jesus is. You will remind us of the great power of the gospel and you will always help us never forget the hope that we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.